Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Brand safety remains a challenge in programmatic advertising. Marketers choose StackAdapt for their whitelist approach to ad inventory and their promise of delivering relevant ads to real people in a brand-safe environment. Visit stackadapt.com to learn more. That's S-T-A-C-K-A-D-A-P-T dot com. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor for Adweek. And with me again is Steph Patrick, our managing editor. Steph, it's always great to have you on. Hey, great to be back. We've also got back frequent guest and TV guru, Jason Lynch, our TV and media editor. Jason, so nice of you to make time for us. Yeah, happy to be here. All right. Well, we are, we are going to talk about some fun news in the marketing and TV world. We're going to talk about some of the biggest issues on the kind of tech and telecom horizon and, of course, the week's best ads. So let's get to it. All right. Domino's uh, is paving America's highways because America can't. I think by now most of you have probably heard about this one. Uh, it launched earlier this year. Uh, Domino's calls it Paving for Pizza. It's from Crispin, well, you know, Crispin Porter Bogusky now called CPB, uh, their longtime agency that has been behind all of uh, Domino's kind of crazy, usually crazy stunts, like when they made a wedding registry for Domino's Pizza and a bunch of other silly things. Uh, some have been very practical. They, they kind of helped redesign the Domino's delivery car and a few other things. Paving for Pizza is a little halfway. It's like practical and also silly, um, but they essentially offered to go around to different communities around the country and help fill potholes. Uh, the brand connection here being that uh, if there are potholes in the road, carry out pizza is hard to get home safely. Uh, and they, they had previously, this part of a brief that the agency had been working on about carry out pizza. So we all think of Domino's as a delivery uh, organization. They wanted to do a little marketing around carry out as well. 
The first thing they launched out of that was an insur- a carry-out insurance program where basically if anything happens to your pizza between when you uh, pick it up and when you get home and put it in your mouth, like if the dog eats it or if you drop it on the front porch or you know it gets smashed in the car, uh, they would refund you and, and replace the pizza. Uh, and so this was the next extension of that was this paving uh, for pizza. And so they originally had enough money to do 20, 20 towns. They had 100000 bucks, So that's 5000 bucks per town. Uh, and they... Um, they have it was so popular. They've got over I think 127,000 uh, applications or you know entries of people wanting them to come to their town. Uh, they came in from all 50 states in the country. Obviously, they only had enough money to do 20 towns. So this past week, they announced uh, that Domino's is going to be stepping it up. They're going to be going to at least one town in all 50 states. They they've ramped up their budget uh, to you know about 500,000, and uh, they're really encouraging people to. Uh, uh, you know, to apply to get it get it brought to their town. I talked to the team at Crispin Porter. Sorry, I always call it Crispin Porter, but they are officially, I believe, now CPB. Uh, I talked to the team at CPB that's been leading this, both the creatives and the most importantly, I think, the executive producer, because uh, he's the one who really has to make all this happen. And I essentially asked them, okay, if I want to bring this to my town, which it has not come to my state yet, so there is still a chance of of that happening. You know, what do I do? And essentially their advice was uh, don't bag on your city or your town like as much as like fight the urge to just be like, oh, man, our mayor is the worst. <laughs> you should come here. <laughs> they said that is is not what they're looking for. Uh, they they actually did you know, reach out to quite a number of towns. They wouldn't say how many where the town declined <laughs> to participate. <laughs> Like good PR for Domino's, not the greatest PR for the the state. Yeah, yeah, and so like the no no town wants to be known as the one that like couldn't fill potholes, so they had to bring the pizza <laughs> couldn't fix company. their own potholes. <laughs> so a lot of them turned it down, but then uh, so the ones that that they partnered with were ones who wanted them there. Uh, you know, I- even though in the ad for this, you see a big Domino's asphalt truck, you may be shocked <laughs> to learn as- there is no Domino's asphalt truck. It's the magic. <laughs> I was going to ask, is Domino's going out and physically paving or are they just like writing the check? Yeah, they write like a $5,000 check yeah. and they send a stencil, like a chalk stencil and a few other, like some signs to put up next to it. They come to the town, they do a little PR thing, uh, but no, they just, they kind of slap a magnet on the side, like a big Domino's magnet on the side of a... <laughs> paving truck and they fill the potholes and so the towns that have gone along with it like wilkes bar pennsylvania was the most recent of course the way the city positions this as we're going to fix these anyway but domino's has helped us do it more quickly without using any extra taxpayer dollars and we love stretching you know getting even more service for our citizens Uh, so making it making it a positive thing Uh, but uh, they've got like I said got uh, 30 more towns to do Uh, so you can uh, learn about that if you look up uh, Paving for Pizza and Ad Week you can get our story our interview with the creatives behind that and some of the other tips they shared but I'm curious what you two think of this idea I mean it seemed to generate a lot of goodwill and at the same time also like Bernie Sanders wrote a whole Facebook post about it where he was just like what does this (laughs) say about the state of the American infrastructure right I, I don't know. I love this one so much. I One of my earliest jobs in journalism was a, a city hall reporter at a town called Gilbert in Arizona, outside of Phoenix. And I went to every city city council meeting for a couple of years. And um, I mean, one of the eye-opening things to me is the, the things that people are really concerned about are things like potholes, you know, things like weeds growing in their neighbor's 
lawn and it might seem small and it might seem silly, but actually it has a big impact on people's lives. And often these towns and, and State Department of Transportation is like just truly like they are stretched. They can't get to all of it quickly. Um, so I, I love and, and, and on the other side, you know, like who has not received a smashed pizza, um, you know, that like you can tell like the driver like took some twists and turns on the way on the way home. So I, I think it's a nice way of solving a couple of real life issues and and creating some goodwill. I don't know, Jason, what did you think? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I have grown to to really like the campaign. And though, you know, my initial response as somebody who is not necessarily a fan of Domino's and the quality of their pizza was that I really thought that, you know, using Using the Domino's pizza themselves to help pave potholes seemed to me to be like an accurate, um, you know, accurate burn. use of, of, of Domino's pizza. That said, um, you know, as, as I looked into the campaign more, and as somebody who you know in my town and in other surrounding towns have been very frustrated about trying to avoid potholes on the road, and probably I'm guessing one of my many flat tires uh, over the years has been has been as as a cause of these potholes. I would be thrilled for anybody, for whatever reason, to to fill those, and and if that means that 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 pot filled pothole has a Domino stencil on it, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> stencil away. So I, I I do think I do think it's 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 an interesting idea. It's a smart idea, and it is a way to get people who are not fans of the brand, um, myself included, kind of in in your corner. Yeah, I have to admit, and maybe this kind of the situation you're in, I have not eaten Domino's in a very long time, and I can just I can just feel. The ears prickling on David Whitney at uh, CPB right now because I know he listens to this podcast and he has very cordially offered to send me uh, Domino's pizza. There's really not one uh, near my house. Um, and uh, and I would just feel like I was betraying my beloved Johnny Brusco's pizza <laughs> that I go to most weeks. But, uh, you know, the big big thing for Domino's and CPB is that they have really ramped up the quality. Uh, again, haven't tried it. Uh, if you have, if you have any strong opinions on the quality of Domino's pizza and how it's changed over the years, drop us a note, podcast at adweek.com. I'm certainly curious to hear about it. Like I said, I haven't, I haven't really, I don't think I've eaten it since this Domino's renaissance uh, began. But uh, I'll, I'll also just be curious to see, you know, I asked the, the agency, what did you learn from this? Like, what are you going to take from this for other clients, for other, you know, projects with Domino's? And I, I think to them, it just showed that when you can find something that actually brings some good and some conversation into the real world and doesn't just try to fake a conversation like, you know, IHOP changing its name to IHOP is, is interesting. It's a fun conversation, but it doesn't really affect your life, right? It's not, it's not like it doesn't change anything about your existence. And this is one that actually struck a nerve. It, it uh, you know, it really did actually have an impact on communities. Not that many in the big scheme of things, you know, one town in every, uh, you know, in each state. Um, but still, you know, it was something that was kind of real. And uh, my favorite, I like to see if I can, uh, if I can find the, the quote, um, because it, the, I asked them, you know, how did it feel to uh, it, it, to work on something that actually got attention uh, beyond you know just advertising people and let's see let's see uh, if I can dig up the quote here uh, Darcy O'Neill is a creative director who worked on this from CPB uh, he said the thing that's been really nice about this is that when something wins an advertising award it's a great thing for your advertising friends but when your actual human being friends are talking about something <laughs> and your grandmother knows about it. That's its own special reward. <laughs> I love that. 
All right, let's move on to um, another another topic. This isn't kind of traditional news, but it's certainly a newsy topic that we wanted to make sure that we we kind of shoehorn in here because it's just so much fun. Uh, Jason, you did a an upfront diary, an anonymous source spelling out uh, the uh, kind of the process of the upfronts. Uh, first, as always, before we get into exactly what this is, remind us, uh, for those not super versed in the world of TV advertising, uh, what are the upfronts? So the, the upfronts are, are kind of the, the centerpiece of the TV advertising year. It's um, There are upfront events all spring, culminating with that upfront week in, in May. And the idea with the upfront market is to get advertisers and buyers to commit a big chunk of their ad buys for the year. Uh, ahead, up front, uh, in front of the the, the TV season. Uh, and if you do that, you do so at a discount. So the idea is to, you know, every year you hear about the upfronts and those negotiations that happen for much of the summer are all about trying to secure those ad, those upfront ad buys for the coming season. Uh, for for those who don't uh, participate in the upfronts or, or don't do all of their buys in the upfronts, then you move to the scatter market. But it is really kind of a, it's the centerpiece of the year and um, it's really kind of what uh, each network and each media company looks to, to kind of like set, you know, like set the bar for, for what their, their, that year's ad sales are going to be like. So it's something that we talk about year round. We really uh, focus on it in the spring and then the summer, but we know very little about it aside from the people in those negotiations. Uh, once the upfront week ends in May, uh, it, it, things are relatively quiet. You know, you'll hear a little bit about how things are going, and then and then company, uh, companies announce that they're done. But um, you know, those who are not involved in the in the process don't know that much about what happened. So that's what was great about uh, being able to get a, a top TV media exec to kind of take us behind the scenes and checking in with me on a regular basis to to really give us uh, kind of like a fly on the wall view of, of, of what it's like, what that whole process is like from, from beginning to end. Jason, so I remember when we were, I remember the meeting we were in kind of at the beginning of the year where you brought up this idea, but none of us were sure like if, if you could actually get someone to right. talk with you kind of on deep background behind the scenes. How hard was it to pull that off? Uh, you know, it was, it was surprisingly not as difficult as I thought it would be uh, given how tight-lipped most of these companies like to be throughout the process. What sold them was the idea that uh, this was something that wasn't going to come out until after upfronts were done. So they had, uh, they, they knew they had kind of that kind of safety net there that, mm -hmm. um, that w anything that they said w was not going to be part of upfront reporting and was not really going to be used until this. So, uh, I, I was, I will say I was pleasantly surprised also, but you know, it's one thing to agree to that. But then once this is underway and, um, if, in, in this story, you know, we touch on there were some big events that happened that may or may not have affected um, the company of the person that I spoke to. You know, Roseanne got canceled two weeks into upfront negotiations, and that was the centerpiece of Disney ABC's upfront. And and you had Comcast, you know, making a play for 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 Fox, uh, trying to upend Disney's bid, and you had AT&T closing its its purchase of Time Warner. So there was a, almost all of the major media companies, I would say, um, were in had some 
some kind of external piece of news that could have upended this. And, you know, this person continued to really give interesting insight through all of that. So uh, it was a really fun process. And and as a result, I feel like, you know, you, you le- I certainly learned a lot about Upfronts and how it works through, throughout this that, that I didn't know. So I hope hopefully other people will feel the same way. My, my favorite line is definitely with the Roseanne one, just again, to maintain the sheer anonymity here, uh, where it says, if that was me, and maybe it is, <laughs> and you lost the centerpiece of your upfront right after you announced the schedule, I would freak out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like you said, we certainly don't reveal anything about this person. But tell us, uh, you know, again, without any identifying information, mm-hmm. but who this person is and why it's important to have their perspective on what, what it's like inside watching the sausage get made. So, so this was this was a top media. Uh, this was a top TV ad sales exec. Uh, that could mean that, that this person is like the, the the ad sales chief of their media company. It could mean that this person is kind of the the next level below. But it is somebody who is uh, who is one of the few that are involved in these negotiations at the top level. I mean, another thing that we have kind of found out through this diary is that there are fewer and fewer stakeholders that are involved in kind of like the top level discussions here. So, um, so it, it, it is somebody who, uh, you know, could really give the perspective of, uh, their network or their their media company and 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 what that is like as they point out in this diary it's this weird situation where the individual networks uh, individual companies are not allowed to talk to each other but the agencies kind of all do so they're in this weird siloed kind of existence uh, during the upfronts where they're not able to really share their insights with with people or, or even just kind of share Intel and so this was this was kind of a, a great opportunity but also for something and 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 it's also interesting in light of the discussion we're going to have later about our cover story about how much the industry is changing. The upfronts are this um, almost kind of archaic part of the TV business that has stuck around. And even even in all the ways that the TV industry has changed, we still have upfronts, we still have scatter. And in many ways, you know, even though the process is a little different than it used to be, it is it is still this very old school part of TV advertising. So uh, it's been really insightful to to just get this this um, behind the scenes look at at how at the, how the whole process works. So you've been covering this industry for a, uh, quite a long time. Uh, you know, if anyone's going to be able to to say whether anything in here was really revelatory, it would be you. What what did you learn from this that you didn't know before? Uh, there was a few things. I mean, the the, the one thing, and uh, which I had just mentioned that was surprising was that you know there is this the 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 individual networks or media companies don't talk to one another, and and yet the agencies kind of do, and so the the networks find out information about their competitors uh, in essence from what the the agencies and uh, and and the buyers that they're speaking with are are telling them, and as they say, you know, you can't. Really, be sure if 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 it's accurate. You kind of have to figure it out for themselves. But but it was interesting to me um, just to hear that where like there's there's a lot of part of this process where they're they're kind of in the dark uh, as much as as anybody is. And um, and then the other thing that was that was interesting to me and, and almost reminded me of. Uh, you know, cop dramas where the the show ends with like, okay, the guys confess, they put them behind bars. And what that doesn't show you is like the hours and hours of paperwork that they then have to spend filling out. And and it's a similar process to this where it's like, okay, you, you, you've closed a big agency, 
you can maybe celebrate for a second, but then the first thing you have to do is basically go uh, line by line through through the deal that you just closed and make sure that make sure that you didn't screw up, make sure they didn't screw up, and there's all this kind of paperwork you need to do first before you can kind of move on to the the next process. So uh, so it was really interesting. Jason, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was just this person talking about the sheer exhaustion involved. And I yes. think it kind of gets also to that old school process. Can you tell us more about just what what these people's days are like? Uh, yeah. So um, so what we, we talk a couple times about what time this person would go to bed. And earlier in the process, it would be midnight. And then I think kind of in the thick of it, it's like 2, 2.30 because, again, it's it's almost I would say it's almost similar to how pilot season is cast in that um, all these shows uh, all all the new potential shows for the next season they all tend to be cast within a couple weeks of each other so everybody is just going crazy and then the rest of the year is is a little quieter and it's almost like this with with upfronts like yes there's negotiation throughout the whole year but you have this condensed period for a couple a couple of weeks a couple this year it went for a couple months but but where there is just kind of nonstop insanity where you have you know you're dealing with multiple agencies uh, at, at at once you're you're trying to again make sure all your i's are dotted and your t's are crossed and, and everything's going on at once and there's there's these other you know things that come up and up upend it you think you've closed something uh, an agency calls back and says oh actually like our client said that they want to be uh, with you guys after all and they didn't so so it is just this kind of never ending thing and and I talked to this person at one point and they had had lost their voice and I said well what happened have you been yelling at people and they said no actually this is just like we, we you you you're so busy when you get home, you can't sleep because like you're just thinking about everything that, that has happened and you're thinking about what you need to do next. And then by the time you are, you're tired, it's time to get up for the next day. So it is this, um, it, this really kind of in, insane process that, that goes on for, for, for weeks and in some cases months. And your story touches on, and you just touched on the the sort of uncertainty that can happen in the TV world during this process, like Roseanne. Um, but also, uh, you touched on the uncertainty that happens in the agency world, and layering that over, um, you know, if if, a, if someone's going into review, someone's switching agencies, right. um, how big of an impact does that have? Uh, yeah. So there there were there were a couple things that they they had pointed out kind of early on where there had either been agencies going into review. I think American Express. Was one, um, or or there had been brands brands that had switched agencies, and it it, it definitely uh, on one hand it happens every year to some degree, so they're used to it. But it does upend those negotiations in the sense of the brands then need have they have to make a decision. Well, if we're gonna if we're gonna go into review, do we continue along the upfront process that that we have we've already plotted out with with this agency? Do we just hit pause and say we're not going to do upfronts this year and we're going to wait until we've kind of resolved this issue? But it is it is something else to consider, especially if that happens deep into negotiations where you think you almost have a deal and then maybe one of the brands says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold on a second, we're not sure anymore." So, uh, so the, yeah, there there is tons of uncertainty coming from almost every angle. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to uh, to check out Jason's story. Uh, the let's see, I don't think we finalized the headline as we uh, as we record this, but it's the upfronts exposed. <laughs> Look for uh, his talk with a secret top TV ad sales exec. 
uh, from Jason Lynch on adweek.com. Uh, thanks so much for walking us through that and uh, stick around because we definitely want uh, Jason, you and Steph to weigh in on this week's ads worth watching. All right. Uh, this week, uh, it was a bit of a, a slow last few days, uh, kind of seeing, you know, it's, it's summer. Summer's a bit of a creative doldrums uh, in, in terms of big marketing. There's not a lot of tentpole stuff unless you've got the Summer Olympics going on. Uh, so uh, oftentimes we don't get a whole lot to talk about uh, except international work. This week we had, we had quite a few hit shortly before we were recording this uh, that were celebrity-centric. I want to talk about some of those. Uh, and they actually have uh, some dialogue monologues that uh, we can and listen to. Uh, so Lin-Manuel Miranda, pretty much uh, one of the biggest stars in America, if not the planet, right? Right now, obviously, the creator uh, of Hamilton and, uh, you know, has just become this creative superstar. Uh, He is the star of a new American Express ad uh, where he essentially gives a tour of his uh, home neighborhood of Washington Heights, where he grew up, where he still lives in Manhattan. And uh, and then also to his theater, which is what all of like two blocks from the Adweek headquarters. Right. Right. Um, and so uh, the let's listen to a little bit. He spends most of it waxing philosophical about the future. And, you know, he is kind of famously uh, from the humble upbringing and uh, and was a very passionate, uh, a, a passionate about music from an early age. Uh, I saw it's not in this ad, but I saw him talking about how stuff he wrote when he was 10 ended up uh, evolving into songs in Hamilton, uh, you know, that he he never gave up on any ideas and that he was always paying attention. So let's let's do a little of that as he talks about kind of thinking about the future and never, you know, never taking things for granted. Don't forget that the past can speak to the future. Let's settle down. I'm going to be your substitute teacher. Don't assume the substitute teacher has nothing to offer. (laughs) Same goes for a neighborhood or a community. Don't forget that friendships last longer than any Broadway run. Mr. President. What's up? I think you meant to say thanks for the call. (laughs) And that inspiration will strike while you're walking your dog or reading a book. So I, I'm curious, you both, uh, you know, are, are in New York um, and, you know, I'm curious what, how, how authentic did this feel to you? Uh, you know, he goes around visiting a uh, barbershop, you know, the pharmacy where he gets his coffee and saying hi to everybody. Uh, it, it To me, it felt a little, uh, you know, it's staged that I don't think that, <laughs> you're not you're not really supposed to walk away thinking like everyone's surprised that these cameras are there. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's charming. Uh, what, what did you two think of the the neighborhood tour aspect of this? Uh, I, I really I really liked it. Um, you know, to to your point, yes, it's you know obviously uh, to a degree it's staged, but it did seem to have a level of authenticity that that was lacking. And I still think about the Fiat commercial that Jennifer Lopez did several years ago, where she talked about going home and she she you know that it shows her drive like a drive. Driving a Fiat up to her old neighborhood. Then it later came out that like it actually she filmed it in L.A. and she hadn't gotten back home. So like she never went back to her own neighborhood. Um, you know this this obviously you know you you see him you see him in his old haunts. You see him interacting everywhere. So I thought for um, you know as 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 much as as authentic as as these ads can be, um, I, I I thought it was great. I love that comparison. I mean, it, it, this is like Lin Manuel Miranda's. Jenny from the block moment, you know, but, but, uh, but, but pulled off, uh, in a more authentic way. Um, I think the, this ad has a lot of warmth and, and so does he, if you follow Mm -hmm. him on Twitter, 
Um, I think what's so great about him is he's obviously a genius. I mean, like you said, David, he's writing things at 10 years old that are, are, you know, years later making it onto Broadway. But he just has this very warm kind of everyman um, uh, personality. And uh, I think it's really enjoyable to follow him through Washington Heights, which is a neighborhood kind of at the very top of Manhattan where he grew up. And you can, um, he actually, uh, he he cast some of his family members and in, in real friends uh, in the ad. So you see his dog, we get to see his wife. Um, and, and the whole, the whole theme of it is that, you know, he, he couldn't have the success he has, um, without help from, from those people, from those pets. And then of course, from his, his Amex card. Yeah. I feel like every ad where a celebrity is showing you like they're in their house, but they don't, they don't necessarily say that because it's usually not true. They're just in like Mm -hmm. this random apartment, maybe hotel room, and they don't want to reveal anything about their you know, they don't want to show their spouse and they, who often are famous in their own ways. And, and uh, you know, they don't really want to reveal any more than they absolutely have to. And so a lot of it's staged. This one where, yeah, to your point, like is he's he's there with his wife. He's there with his dog. And um, I, I should note Josh Sternberg, our tech editor, uh, tweeted that, oh, this ad is, is really good. I especially love some of the subtle things. Like there's an Amex sticker visible in the window of this cab when he's riding in it, which, you know, that's pretty cute. Uh, but then uh, he said, and and how he put a Hamilton sticker over the Beats logo on his headphones. And Lin- Lin-Manuel Miranda responded to Josh <laughs> and said, uh, no, those are actually custom. <laughs> <laughs> like when, like you're, when you're him, you get your own custom Hamilton yep. headphones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, he, and uh, you know, he just kind of made a joke about, I uh, can't wear them on the A train, but, uh, but yes, I... Uh, those are those are my favorites. Uh, so just to your point, he's he's so authentic. He actually responds to even even quasi snide comments even on, on Twitter. Even tech editors get a response. <laughs> uh, the other one I want to talk about uh, on the not to say the opposite end because this is authentic in its own way. Is celebrities maybe poking a little fun at themselves? Elton John is the newest Snickers. Uh, diva, uh, I, I guess we we talked recently about Aretha Franklin when she passed away. That she had been in a 2010 uh, one of the earliest uh, Snickers "You're Not You When You're Hungry" ads, uh, where a, you know she was on a road trip and is being a diva, and they give her the Snicker bars, turns back into a, you know just random dude. This time around, it's a Snickers UK ad, uh, and it is, it is called Rap Battle, so you can probably guess uh, what the situation it's in. And then, uh, of course, the Rap Battle competitor turns out to be Elton John. Let's listen to what happens, which you can probably envision, but it's still pretty hilarious audio. So let's check it out. Stop right there. Here, eat a Snicker. You always lose your edge when you're hungry. To to me, this felt like, did any of you, did either of you see Kingsman Golden Circle, the the spy movie? Uh, I did. I did not. Do you remember his his cameos in that, Jason? I do. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, and and that was really fun. You know, to me, I actually thought that that movie um, did a better job of of just kind of having fun with Elton John. This was perfectly fine, but to me, you know, I feel like like 
the Betty White ad, the Betty White Snickers ad is kind of like the gold standard as far as this campaign goes. And, and for better, for worse, um, you know, everything gets measured against that. And that to me was just kind of like the, the, the perfect mix of, of, of actor and, and, and situation. And, and for this, like I, I, it was fun to see him poking fun at himself, but at the same time I was confused. Like, so, cause he's not really acting like a diva on in it. He's, he's just singing his song. Like maybe he's not following directions. Like I, I just felt like the execution, something was off with the execution where he either needed to try and rap and rap badly or, or to just kind of not be listening to anybody. Like I, I, I was a little confused as to like what snicker, like, how Snickers was supposed to help him in this situation, I guess, which maybe he's reading a little too much too much into the ad. But again, you know, when 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 you've pulled it off so well with Betty White, it's just hard to measure up. I think. Well, I I think they've tried to interpret it a few different ways. You know, of like you're not you when you're hungry can mm-hmm. mean can mean you're grumpy and ornery, or can just mean you're off your game. Right. And, and that's how I took this one. This is one of the off your game ones where it's just like Elton John is not who you want to be in a rap battle. But Steph, what were you about to say? <laughs> I was, I mean, I, I completely agree with Jason. This one fell a little flat for me and, and maybe it is because of the high bar. I mean, I think last week or, or a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Aretha Franklin Snickers ad, which I thought was, you know, a better execution than this one. Um, I think the line here, the rappers, you know, after Elton John bursts in the song, the rappers say like, you know, dude, you're losing your edge. And they give him a Snickers bar and then, you know, he turns into a rapper. Um, but it's a little odd to say that Elton John doesn't have edge. I mean, not, you know, a different kind of edge than a rapper. But um, I, was, I was surprised and I do have to say good on him for being willing to be, you know, part of such a self-deprecating spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there was a little bit of a disconnect there. Yeah, and it was, you know, the the kind of kind of weird, like, I don't know where to look vibe that Elton John always has. Like, <laughs> what like, am like, I seeing? In, in uh, because his glasses aren't quite dark enough to hide the fact that he's just kind of staring off in random directions, and like in uh, in Kingsman Golden Circle, the the shtick there is that he's been he's being held captive by Julianne Moore's evil uh, drug lord character, and she just keeps him in a cage and dresses him in these crazy costumes, and he talks every once in a while and just randomly like yells at her. Uh, but even in that, he just <laughs> it's like it's so forced. And so, like, like hilariously out of place that it almost works. I remember every time he was on screen, I'm like, "Is is he is he in on the joke?" I th- I'm pretty sure he is. You know, I'm pretty. And in this one, it was very clear that he's. It almost takes a certain amount of of. Uh, real kind of humility to be able to say, oh, I'm going to make fun of the fact that I'm the worst person you'd want to be <laughs> in this situation. And he like, in, I assume intentionally sings his song, not great, but he did have some some very uh, nice things to say about hip hop in general and and about uh, the, the other rappers who are in the ad who are, are not called out. I don't know how, honestly, how famous any of them are. There's uh, the guy that he's in the body of, I guess, I don't know is, is a U.S. rapper named Boogie, uh, who's uh, you know pretty popular. And then there's a few British. Uh, this is a UK spot from agency AMV BBDO, uh, so a few British uh, rappers in there as well. Uh, but there's a, a what I thought was kind of a charming quote uh, from Elton John uh, that they sent along with the ad, where he said, "Most people already know I've been a long I've been an advocate of hip hop." 
And that's why I wanted to be a part of this. I got to hang out with Boogie and some great hip-hop talent from the UK, too. Moreover, I love the direction of the new Snickers ads. I uh, have humorously portrayed being off your game when you're hungry, but in a way that's current and relevant to young people, especially considering hip-hop is one of the biggest music genres in the world today. Uh, so I thought that was kind of nice that he, you know, who knows who really wrote that quote. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Milton John sat down at a laptop and hammered that out. Um, but I thought that was still a nice sentiment just to kind of say, like, I'm not making fun of this genre. I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not distancing myself from it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you can uh, check out that full spot. Uh, our headline is Elton John isn't the best at rap battles in Snickers' newest celebrity cameo ads. You can check that out on Adweek. Uh, Steph, you had, uh, before we start recording, you had... Uh, mentioned that you really liked a piece that we wrote about from HP this week. Uh, do you want to remind us a little bit about that one? Oh, yeah. So um, so Doug Zanger, uh, our, uh, one of our creativity editors, um, wrote about um, a new campaign from HP. And I think it was, David, was it called Family Portrait? Have that right? uh, yeah, all American family, or yeah, yeah and, like and and essentially what they did was they they got um, they they had a room full of people um, who I think it was maybe thirteen different families, so you know different moms, different dads, different kids, and then they brought in a couple of people and said, hey, we want you to assemble the all American family. Like when we say all American family, who are you picturing? And then the people had to to go through this group of people and kind of kind of pull together who they thought the real family was. And it's one of those ideas that like in in theory, it sounds really contrived. And actually when I heard about it, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. But I watched it this morning and started crying at my desk, which is a hazard of working for um, an <laughs> advertising magazine because we, you know, we watch ads all day. And if when they're done well, you know, they they will elicit an emotional reaction. You know, you might be laughing at your desk one day, crying at your desk another. But I was I was surprised by um, how well it was executed and and how it it made me feel. And you know, of course, the the um, you know the the people kind of pull you know like the the tall dad and the blonde mom and the you know the the smiling kids. They put together an all white family. Um, afterward, the HP had the real families get together, so you could see the actual groupings, and it was, you know, incredibly diverse. Um, you know, you had families with two moms, families with two dads, um, multicultural families. Um, my own family is a multicultural family, so I think it, it it struck a personal chord, and it really showed that even though we're so many of us are part of multicultural families, when we hear all American family, we still think, you know, this kind of like white, like 1950s view of a family. And I thought HP did a really nice job of just showing our bias and suggesting like, hey, when we say all-American family, let's get real about what that really means. Yeah, the... Um the the stat that the, the stats they threw out that they based this ad on, uh, and I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but they said something like when three out of four people in America, when asked to describe an all American family, describe this white hetero, uh, you know, man and woman with children with you know, white children. Even even in the ad, we see uh, you know black people are saying this, and and that's kind of the most heartbreaking, right? Is that you feel mm-hmm. like you're not a part of your own country's. Uh, image. And so they said three out of four people when asked describe it that way in the survey that they did of 2000 Americans, but only one in four American families actually looks like that. Uh, So that distinction, I think there's a little uncomfortableness in this ad in the sense of kind of they're asking people to 
like go go literally grab these human beings who are standing mm-hmm. here and and position them into what you think of as an American family. That's asking a lot of the people in that video um, to to basically highlight their own I- internalized you know racism or or kind of acceptance of of that structure. Uh, but then at the end to reveal not only who the real families are in the grouping, but also that that basically 75 percent of American families don't look like that. Uh, so so definitely good on HP. And, and uh, I'm glad you you reminded me before we started recording, because that it, it's you know, again, it's a lovely sentiment. It's one that a lot of people do. Honey made uh, the 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 graham cracker, I think, brand. They've been doing this for a while with their this is wholesome campaign. When you talked right. about crying at your desk like there is a yeah. a honey made drug of five ad from a few years ago where it's just it's just home footage of you know of people kind of uh, coming out to their families or just talking to their adoptive parents and things like just these very real moments and there's one where a boy tells his mom that he's gay and she immediately says you know i know and and hugs him and even thinking about it right now i get teary you know it's one of those mm-hmm. ads where i'm just like oh man that's oh that's good and it's like part of you doesn't want to give it to marketers. <laughs> like, I don't want you to have access to my soul, <laughs> but good on them when they do it right and when the message is good. So, uh, well, thank you both for weighing in on that. We're going to take a little break uh, and we're going to bring in another another guest from Adweek here and talk about our cover story in this week's edition. So we'll, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Stack Adapt, the number one programmatic native advertising platform with the right tools for navigating the complexities of digital media from real-time forecasting to hypergranular reporting. Visit stackadapt.com to learn more. That's S-T-A-C-K-A-D-A-P-T dot com. All right, we are back. Uh, we have brought in another guest from the Adweek staff into the room, Patrick Culp, a staff writer on the Tech Beat. Uh, Patrick, this is your first time on the podcast, right? Yep. All right, well, welcome. How long have you been at Adweek now? Uh, three months, I think. All right. Well, glad we could finally get you on. Uh, and so you wrote this week's cover story uh, about kind of the new media wars and how things are shaping up with AT&T, with Verizon, with a lot of the biggest players uh, in the kind of telecom media, this this rapidly combining <laughs> uh, conglomerate space of what we broadly call media. Uh, so tell us first, what is the context of the story? What 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 was your kind of mission in tackling this cover story? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing is that AT&T is kind of like the, I mean, Verizon had its media ambitions. It had uh, Oath, which was uh, Yahoo and AOL combined in their ad tech stacks. Uh, And now AT&T has kind of become like the um, best bet basically against Yahoo, I mean, against uh, Google and Facebook in terms of uh, ad tech. And, um, um, it's interesting that they're just kind of diverging here now where uh, Verizon has basically said that they're not going to do any more media. They're not going to acquire any more content companies. They're not going to um, – I mean, they're going to they, – they still stand by oath even though there's, there's all these rumors about it being spun off. But um, AT&T is really like positioning itself as like the modern media company as they say it. And that's, I think that's pretty interesting. Now, now, most consumers really probably still think of AT&T as just a, their wireless carrier, maybe their internet provider. What, what, you know, what's the rest of the iceberg under the surface there that, that consumers probably don't see about the AT&T business? Yeah, I mean, they bought Time Warner, which is like massive. I mean, that's uh, Warner Media, which is like a, 
a movie studio and they have uh they have the cable channels which are like uh I mean Turner, TNT, all of that. And then they have also um AppNexus, which is a huge investment too. Yeah, remind us what what AppNexus is because that is a big part of the story, but uh again, you know, some folks who aren't in the ad tech space may not know uh you know what what this is. Yeah, so AppNexus is like an open exchange and um I think that a lot of people a lot of people who I talked to were worried that like they're going to um take AppNexus to like a licensed or like a closed platform basically and um but AT&T when I talked to their executives they've denied this and they've said that like they don't want a closed platform they want a as they put it like a community garden as, as opposed to a walled garden so um AppNexus Basically, it's just like an open exchange for advertising of all sorts, like a digital uh, display or uh, native or video, whatever. Is it oversimplifying to say that AT&T is, is a viable contender to kind of compete with the duopoly uh, that we've talked about with with uh, Google and Facebook, uh, really kind of dominating so much of the, the media and advertising space? Or is AT&T a contender there to kind of add to that to compete with that? Or are they in a completely different universe uh, where they wouldn't be considered a, a direct competitor to those two? Uh, I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, I think uh, AT&T itself would say that uh, they are a contender. They are... Uh, they, I mean, they say that, like, they're not competing with them, but, I mean, obviously they are, and I think that there's kind of a weird uh, uh, distinction there between, like, a, I think that they do think of themselves as competing with them, and then, uh, but you talk to analysts, they would say, like, oh, no, they're nowhere close to competing with them. I mean, uh, I think that uh, um, when you talk to analysts or um like anyone who's like kind of objective about the industry, then they they say that like no, it's gonna it's gonna take a lot more than that for AT and T to actually compete with these the duopoly power. You know, Jason, I, oh, oh sure, uh, you know, I was coming coming at this from the TV side, and this is this is a really fascinating story. But you know, two things that 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 really stood out to me um, in the story were first, um, AT and T talked a little bit in here about how. Um, one of their big priori- priorities on the TV side is going to be addressable advertising, which is targeted advertising. And this is something that I've heard ad sales um, execs, potentially even the one who I talked to for this upfront diary, talk about how you know this is the future and this is something that they're really uh, that they're really focused on. Um, do you feel that now the kind of AT and T has has you know, been able to kind of enter this world uh, from buying, you know, from buying Time Warner, and now, you know, now with they have skin in the game with Turner. Do you feel like that that will be able to kind of, you know, and their their interest in this will be able to help uh, help accelerate addressable advertising in TV? Yeah, I think it. I mean, I think that if anything, it will. Uh, I think that uh, I've talked to like Turner ad salespeople though, mm-hmm. who are kind of. Treating that as like a far off thing, mm-hmm. like they're not gonna start doing addressable advertising anytime soon, right? And they're also distributed through like other cable companies, which AT and T doesn't own, right. which AT and T is gonna have to forge deals with, or gonna have to. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it's, it's it's kind of like one of the key stumbling blocks with trying to make addressable advertising, um, you know, more mainstream is that you don't control kind of you don't control the entire transaction, so it, it's really difficult. And and you know, it'll be interesting to see if AT and T can make headway on, on in, a, in a way that the other companies haven't been. The other thing to me, and you talked about it a little bit earlier, was um, you know, the striking to me in your story is Verizon. Once again, digging in their heels with Oath and saying that like Oath is working for us, and Oath is like we we're really behind Oath, and, and it, it was shocking to me that you know for, for years that 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 Verizon didn't kind of respond to the AT and T's Ty Warner purchase with 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 you know buying Fox, which actually I've said all along I feel that Verizon may have been the best partner for Fox um, because they that would have really helped them compete with AT and T. But what you know talk a little bit more about what about Verizon's kind of rationale for not going, not following AT&T's lead into um, into this industry where, you know, the, the, the big thing with the AT&T Time Warner deal was that, okay, uh, AT&T now can create content with the, the Time Warner assets and they distribute it. Mm-hmm. But Verizon is not doing that. You know, Verizon is seeing it differently. What what was kind of striking to you about, about you know, what Verizon, you know, how, how they're still kind of standing by oath? Yeah, Verizon's interesting because I think that, uh, I mean, from what I understand, talking to their chief strategy officer, uh, they don't want to like lock themselves into any kind of content play. They want to partner with any, any, and any, every content producer they can. Uh, they made it very clear that like uh, they recently uh, announced that this uh, Apple and Google. Um, partnership for their four or five G test markets, but they m- wanted to make it very clear that like those aren't going to be the uh, test markets going on. Like they're going to have more partnerships. So I think that I think one thing is like the Go ninety debacle just kind of like soured them on content. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean that and like Oath. I don't know how well Oath is performing. I mean, if you talk to Verizon, they'll tell you that like. Oath is everything. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, the best data that's available. But uh, I don't. And you talk to anyone else in the industry, they're not so sold on it. So, Patrick, I know you've done a fair amount of reporting on on five G, and it's something that interests you. And you you get into that a bit with this story. Um, how do you see these different players um, factoring into the new five G landscape, and who's going to come out on top? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about 5G that's not really being reported as much is that uh, eventually people see 5G as being, like fixed 5G, like into the home or Mm -hmm. office, as being like competitive with uh, cable or any kind of terrestrial broadband, which I think is, uh, I mean, that's going to change the landscape of the whole telecom industry. I mean... You're going to have Verizon and AT&T being competitive with like Comcast and Charter, and you're already seeing like those companies um, kind of uh, Charter and Comcast are already starting to like experiment with 5G because they understand this, and like uh, I think that it's going to be as a lot of analysts put it, it's going to be a lot of convergence in terms of like uh, broadband landlines versus uh, wireless versus uh, I mean, like OTT versus um, traditional TV. I mean, it's all going to kind of converge, basically, mm. with 5G. 
Yeah, I feel like so many people take it for granted or maybe just don't even think about it, the fact that how much of our access to the internet, to content, to entertainment is determined by who who has the pipe running up to our door, right? Like who physically uh, runs the wires to our house. And that has, you know, is anyone who lives in any neighborhood where you have very finite choices on your internet access and on your, your cable, uh, that's why. I, am, I, am I right or wrong in thinking as someone who, I'm the creative editor, so this is we're we're pretty soundly outside of my areas of expertise here. Uh, but I get excited about the future of 5G as being this era that could open up a lot more choice uh, in terms of of where you're you're getting that. Uh, am I am I right or wrong in thinking that that we're headed somewhere good with that, or is it just going to be we're headed into another world controlled by a very small number of power players? No, I think that's uh, I think that's right. I mean, I think that. Uh, just the idea of opening up, I mean, converging like terrestrial broadband with like a Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile and Sprint, um, I think that will open up more doors. And like, I mean, it's basically a monopoly right now in terms of landlines. And it's a much cheaper to just broadcast wireless into your home than it is to uh, actually build a pipe into your home. As we're having this discussion, I'm flashing back to a um, to a, a college lecture I attended, you know, decades ago, unfortunately. But uh, but where where the professor was making the point that um, you know at some point as the industry evolves, it's really going to come down to the phone companies versus the cable companies for kind of control of you know of the consumer dollar and the consumer eyeballs. And it's and you know even though so much has happened in that time frame, certainly nobody saw Netflix coming or nobody saw mobile you know going to the level that it's at. We are still at that point where, and I think it does seem to you know to, to what you guys were saying before, five G does maybe seem where we're going to get at that point where there will finally be a winner in that kind of you know cable company versus phone company battle. So are there any other power players we have not talked about here? Obviously, we've talked about AT&T, Verizon, which is kind of sticking with a, a different course uh, than AT&T. Uh, Patrick, are there, are there any other big companies that are kind of viable players where you see in the next few years they're going to be kind of continuing to rise as as real players on everything from the buying and selling and programmatic side of advertising to the creative and the content like like we've seen with AT&T? I think those are the main ones, but there's also the prospect of like a Sprint and T-Mobile merger, which they're mm-hmm. pushing for. And uh, they claim that, I mean, uh, one thing about the Verizon and AT&T is they're building their 5G on like a very... Uh, small like a short wavelength and like sprint and t-mobile if they were to merge i mean this is what the the case they're making is that they would be able to provide uh 5g for like a much larger much broader like portion of the population just because uh, uh, the way that uh, verizon and t are building their 5g it's like mostly uh for urban areas i mean it's uh but um yeah, I think that they're the main players. And then I think that, I mean, you have Charter and Comcast kind of like experimenting with 5G a little bit. Um, but it doesn't really seem to be amounting to much. Um, I would say that, yeah, besides from Sprint and T-Mobile, that's the main players. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be interested. I, I, I personally will be keeping my eye on Comcast just a bit to really see how they're going to react after kind of throwing uh, – waving the white flag on, on their Fox pursuit. And even though they said they're really you're focusing more on, on trying to, to outbid Fox, ironically, for Sky, it still feels like they, they're very clearly searching for kind of another piece of that puzzle. And maybe that will overlap with, with kind of some of the other companies we're talking about here. 
So, so I, I wouldn't be surprised um, to maybe see Comcast trying to kind of make a play to, to, to be in this world as well. Jason, tell us a little bit about, I mean, if you know anything about the potential or the aspirations of Disney to, you know, they have obviously been the acquisition machine over the last few years and just seem to be part of everything. I know we've talked about the potential of a of a standalone streaming service, but that's almost small potatoes compared to the stakes we're talking about. Is there is there any upward mobility for, for Disney in the areas that we're talking about well, here today? Uh, not not necessarily in the areas we're talking about. I mean, Disney wants to, you know, it, it, it's interesting that when on the TV side, when you talk about the industry, you're really talking about kind of how Netflix is is, is taking up all the oxygen in the room. But Netflix, Netflix is not doing what we're talking about here with AT&T and Verizon. It's a really, you know, they can create content, but they can't. They they don't really have the means of distributing. I mean, obviously, yes, you can get you can get uh, Netflix direct, but still, and if you don't have broadband, you can't get Netflix. So so Disney, what dis and Disney's aspirations are are still kind of in that same boat as Netflix, where they really want to become a global powerhouse, a a global you know to have as many global brands as possible. But what they can't do, which AT and T and Verizon can, is get that content to you. Um, they still Disney still needs to rely on a third party to to do so. I mean, is that a gap you think they'll ever try to close, or you think I, they're just kind of content with that? I, I think right now, I mean, once they once the Fox deal closes, that's going to be a big focus of theirs. I think for at least a couple years to come, they've already said that launching this new Disney OTT service at the end of next year is their top priority for 2019. So I don't think that it is top of mind right now, but potentially a couple years down the line, as again the 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 number of media companies maybe even will shrink more, they may realize that uh, that that's that that is a gap that they're going to have to address. But I don't see it happening in the next year or two. It, it is, you know, I've I've talked about this metaphor before too, but it's like I went on a Disney cruise. Um, which is a a fascinating and somewhat kind of dystopian uh, experience of just seeing if when Disney owns everything, like literally everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know if you turn on the TV, it is Disney TV. You know, it's all Disney all the time. Everything streaming is Disney. Everything, the backbone of everything is Disney. And of course, you get that experience at the resorts too. But the resorts are kind of easy to go in and out of like when you're on a Disney <laughs> cruise. Like they literally take you to an island that is owned by Disney. Like they are, the, they are the, they are the government <laughs> <laughs> there. So it's it's just kind of fascinating to see that they could rule the world, I suppose, if they really wanted to. But they probably have their aspirations somewhat vaguely in check of just owning every creative property that can buy up. Well, I we have barely even scratched the surface of a lot of the topics that Patrick gets into in this week's cover story. So definitely recommend everyone check that out on the New Media Wars in, on the cover of Adweek. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, Jason and Steph, uh, always a pleasure to have you both on. I really appreciated the conversation. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, of course. It's great to talk, David. All right. Well, uh, we will be back next week with even more. Uh, and if uh, you know, be sure to check out adweek.com for lots more on everything that we've talked about today. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was edited by Lane McGibney and produced by Anya Fernando. Please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We also have our 100th episode coming up hot. So uh, if you have any questions you'd like us to address or answer, we, we're going to use that opportunity to answer as many questions as we can about Adweek, about the industries we cover about podcasting yeah whatever man open mic uh, send us in it's podcast at adweek.com we'd love to hear your questions uh, i'm david griner with adweek and we will be back next week
Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.